0: Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and in this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is that thinking about possible futures can give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we'll be asking forward-looking questions inspired by the future of healthcare. And in particular, we'll be asking what the world would look like if
1: antibiotics no longer worked and what we need to do today to stop that becoming a reality. So at the moment, if we take the United States, for example, you have about 700,000 people who get a hospital-acquired infection. So if for most of those people, antibiotics are no longer working, that's the scope of the problem you're looking at in America alone. Also, I'm joined by healthcare
0: expert Mark Britnell to discuss how technology can overcome staff shortages
2: worldwide. A nurse will go into their home to provide care, but when they need to consult with a doctor, they wear visor screens and clinical information drops down the visor screen and the doctor appears as a hologram in front of them.
0: Today, around 700,000 people die each year from drug-resistant infections. And that number could reach 10 million a year by 2050 if nothing is done. That would make antimicrobial resistance, or AMR for short, a bigger killer than cancer is today. More and more disease-causing bacteria are becoming partially, or in some cases completely, resistant to existing antibiotics. To imagine a world where antimicrobial resistance has reached crisis point, I'm joined by Slaveya Chankova, the Economist's healthcare correspondent, who's imagining this outcome in our upcoming World If collection of scenarios. Hello there, Slavea. Hi, Anne. So you're imagining a world in around 2040 where antibiotics no longer work. Broadly, what would this look like?
1: It will be quite bad, and particularly for people at hospitals. So, right now, on any given day, 80,000 patients in European hospitals alone have a hospital acquired infection. Most of those infections are bacterial. The vast majority of them are treatable with antibiotics. If one antibiotic doesn't work, patients would get another. If that doesn't work, they'll get another. However, we are running out of options, so that's kind of the scope of the problem we, that we could be looking at. So at the moment, if we take the United States, for example, you have about 30,000 or so deaths from antimicrobial resistance each year. However, you have about 700,000 people who get a hospital-acquired infection. So if for most of those people, antibiotics are no longer working, that's the scope of the problem you're looking at in America alone. So why exactly
0: is this happening and why aren't the drugs working?
1: One common misperception out there is that people themselves become resistant to antibiotics. That is not correct. It is the microbes that get into our bodies or live on our skin that get resistant to antibiotics. And those microbes, they're out there and they evolve constantly. And the more antibiotics we throw at them, the more resistant they get. That includes antibiotics which are used in agriculture, that they're used to spray crops. So you get all these resistant microbes that at some point get to human beings and start making us sick. And we are running out of an arsenal of drugs to treat them.
0: And how would the scenario that you outline affect, say, routine surgery, the kind that
1: many of us will undergo in our lifetimes? It could become pretty bad because if you think about it right now, about 30% of births in America are by C-section. So that's a routine surgery, which is very safe. Very few women you know, would die uh, because of the operation. But if you have microbes which are resistant to antibiotics, which um, infect many people, routine surgeries can become a death sentence. Because right now, most of the microbes live harmlessly on our skin or in our guts. It's only when they get into our bloodstream or um, some sort of a tube that goes into the body, you know, when you're in a hospital, that's when things get really bad. Each and every one of us will probably at some point be hospitalized for one thing or another. And if those microbes resistant to antibiotics become more widespread, then it's a danger for pretty much everyone at some point in their lifetime. That doesn't sound too promising, but thanks, Slavea.
0: Although this is a harrowing portrayal of the future, if we don't do more today to address this growing threat, resistant infections will become more common and more life-threatening. this scenario that Slaveya imagines could become a reality. Because of that, The Economist recently held an antimicrobial resistance summit in London, bringing together experts from the whole spectrum of the field, discussing how the worst could be avoided. Opening the forum was Sally Davis, Chief Medical Officer for England and the Chief Medical Advisor to the UK Government.
3: So I'm a glass half full person. Some countries have put in place plans and have made progress. We in the UK have dropped our antibiotic use in humans by 7.3% over the last four years. We've dropped it considerably more in the animal sector. Um, I really like the chicken fig figure, the chicken farmers like me. Um, 71% reduction in use with an 11% rise in protein. So different countries have made progress. We've made progress at the global level. Everyone's hampered, either because they see it as so complex because of the food chain and the different interests and this intersection between public and private sector, and so it's so complex they don't know what to do, or hampered by lack of money. And we should never forget that where it's worst, TB being one of the examples, in the low-income countries is where they have least money to take Mm -hmm. action. We are a bit stuck because the big pharma model where they did all the research in-house is not holding true for a number of pharma. You need little start-ups that become SMEs that they then eat up. And, and that works well, except if there's no incentive to pull them through, then you can't get the investment in the startups and the SMEs. So we've got to find a way for that. And only by trying it will we, first of all, know what works. Secondly... I bet with different health st- system structures and cultures, we will have to play our
0: respective roles differently. It isn't just overprescription in humans that's causing the problem. It's also massively overused in agriculture. Here's the author of Plucked, The Truth About Chicken, Mary McKenna.
4: I think we've We have kind of known for a while, even if we didn't pay attention to it, that the misuse of antibiotics in livestock farming and meat agriculture was a significant problem. It's only really now being identified in the past couple of years, thanks to work from the Wellcome Trust and thanks to work from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, that there's also antibiotic use broadly in the environment and in plant agriculture against fungal diseases of plants, for instance, which has whomped up resistant aspergillosis in vulnerable people. In the United States, as you heard, we are spraying uh, streptomycin and oxytetracycline, hundreds of thousands of kilograms on citrus uh, groves to save the orange industry of Florida and California. No matter how we have misused antibiotics in all of these settings, the central problem is that we are not using them for the thing that they were invented for which is to cure infections. And if we could reduce antibiotic use in all of these sectors down to the essential problem of not growth promotion, not prevention of infections, not control of plant diseases, but curing infections in humans, we would be reducing the scope of the problem we're dealing with now.
0: A huge part of the problem is the lack of new drugs coming onto the market and there isn't enough private investment. For large pharmaceuticals, the profits aren't there as antibiotics are used for just a short course of treatment, so sales are very limited. In addition, governments hold down the price of antibiotics, leaving little financial incentive for pharmaceutical companies to invest in research. Likewise, when a new antibiotic is introduced, it's not long before bacteria become resistant to it. If a new antibiotic is reserved only for use in treating those resistant infections, well, for most of the time, it will sit on the pharmacy shelf, not being used until desperately needed. So as things stand, there's little reason for companies to spend a fortune developing something they won't be able to profit from. But how can we change this? Here's The Economist's healthcare editor, Natasha Loder, discussing how to incentivise the industry. The heart of the
5: problem is we're just not paying enough for antibiotics. And so the solution is we have to pay more for them. So the discussion now is how might we uh, put more money into antibiotics and how much we might need. Broadly speaking, we need to be spending about A billion dollars for each new antibiotic drug that we develop. And if the uh, market is not paying that at the moment, if hospitals aren't paying that to pharmaceutical firms for their new antibiotics, then these drugs are just not going to get developed. In terms of solutions, one of the things that has been discussed has been a sort of reward, a sort of market entry reward or a prize given to antibiotic firms that introduce uh, new drugs into the market that's one part of a solution that's been discussed. A second part of that would be also to sort of guarantee payments uh, to antibiotic firms, whether or not the antibiotics were used. And this is talked about as the Netflix model. In other words, governments would pay a subscription for their antibiotics, something that would be sort of divvied up among the firms that were providing them. So those are the two main solutions that being suggested. There is also another idea that's sort of being floated at the moment, which is the idea of creating a sort of public-private entity uh, that would develop uh, antibiotic drugs and uh, deliver returns, although sort of lower than you would traditionally find with pharmaceutical development, but nonetheless would be high enough to attract long-term investment.
0: So far, we've looked at cutting down on the overuse of current antibiotics and what's needed to create replacement drugs. But there's another important part of this puzzle too, the role of preventing infections in the first instance. Here's David Salisbury, former Director of Immunisation at the Department for Health in London.
6: There's a sort of sense that vaccines have got themselves already sorted out. And I think that's wrong. I think that we need to be able to reflect much more clearly that we have vaccines that already prevent AMR and they prevent the infections that get treated with antibiotics, and thereby, clearly, you don't get the infection, you don't get the antibiotic, you don't get AMR. So, clearly, we need to be better at advocating for the vaccines we already have, and some of them are impactful. Pneumococcal vaccine is impactful already in reducing AMR. Influenza vaccination prevents flu and thereby prevents people giving antibiotics either inappropriately or appropriately. So we already are well-placed with some of the vaccines that we have. We have ahead of us a lot of new vaccines for which AMR will be a really important element.
0: Antimicrobial resistance is here and there's still a long way to go to really raise global awareness of the problems. Without serious intervention and new approaches, the scenario that Slavea painted isn't that far away. And finally, a broader look at what the future might hold, and specifically the worldwide problem of understaffing. According to the WHO, by 2030, the world will be short of approximately 15 million health workers, a fifth of the workforce needed to keep healthcare systems going. One person who's looking for solutions to that is Mark Britnell, senior partner for healthcare, government and infrastructure at KPMG International. He's also the author of a new book, Human Solving the Global Workforce Crisis in Healthcare, and he's joining me now to discuss advancements in technology that we might use to solve that problem. Hello Mark. Hello. One of the main problems that you see for the future of healthcare is the shortage of healthcare workers, so much so that that's the structure of your new book and the question that you've set out to answer. Why is this going to happen?
2: Well, over the last 10 years, I've had the privilege of working in 77 countries. And I've noticed two phases, the phase between 2009 and 15, the global financial crisis phase. Most of our clients globally were talking about money or rather the lack of it. But I started to notice a change in 2016 where some of our health systems and countries had enough money to hire more staff, but they couldn't find them. So literally for the last three or four years, I've been thinking there's a growing uh, global workforce crisis. And what I've noticed is there are many worthy uh, and dense documents which beautifully describe the problem, but are less eloquent in defining the solutions.
0: How might we go about solving this? One of the sort of go-to solutions is technology. But is technology really the like-for-like place to go for this solution?
2: Well, in the book, I, I cover 10 countries, which cover half the world's population. And then I boldly uh, um, suggest 10 solutions of which uh, digital disruption and technology is just one. I'm not a digital wizard. Uh, I'm not a futurologist. But I've seen systems now that are using artificial intelligence Robotics and cognitive uh, assistance to to better good. Now, there have been uh, some great pieces recently, uh, Eric Topple being one of them, that's showing how artificial intelligence can help patient care. But actually, there's less research and uh, I think evidence that's uh, demonstrating how artificial intelligence can also help the workforce per se. When you think about what's going on in, in China, for example, now, where there are various products uh, on the marketplace, Pinga and Good Doctor. It is now almost like Uber for Chinese uh, people to find a doctor. Who Explain is... briefly how it works. You could be somebody living in the middle of uh, China. Um, you may not be too happy with the doctors that live locally uh, t- to you. You can now almost like a, an Uber taxi ride, look at a list of doctors, look at their conditions that they're specialists in a- and make phone calls. And basically that software will hook you up. And before you speak to that doctor, all sorts of algorithms will be run to make sure they've got information on you. So you're not wasting your time. The doctor isn't wasting her or his time. And basically, its growth has been phenomenal. In Bangladesh, where their the health service is, is uh, not all that it should be, we've seen a, a Norwegian telephone company produce um, a product where you have call centres of doctors and nurses, algorithms and artificial intelligence and bots that basically close 70% of all calls on the phone. What do I mean by that? Well, you phone them up, you pay the telephone company a monthly subscription, you get uh, a certain amount of airtime, they talk to you about your conditions, and 70% of those uh, issues are closed and dealt with on the phone. And then automatically a prescription is spat out to your local community pharmacy because they obviously know where you are because of your mobile phone. And so if you think about it, that whole consultation takes place without seeing physically a doctor at all. Now, of course, in some instances, many developed countries may say, well, that's just a bit too impersonal for us. Mm. But then when you look at the United States of America and Kaiser Permanente, which many people know about, 68% of all of their consultations now are are not face-to-face, they're face-to-cloud.
0: And that's a big innovative healthcare organisation in in England. It
2: is, yes. It's it's a high-quality healthcare organisation, both Pays for care and provides care as well.
0: Patients are often a bit sceptical about the idea of replacing the doctor by an online consultation. They think things will be missed. It just, it won't feel like seeing a doctor. That There's a lot of culture in there, isn't there as well? A lot of sort of... Ancestor worship mm-hmm. in the profession. Why should they be happier to go in that direction? And give me an example that's going to persuade me. Maybe I'm a slightly fragile person. I'm not feeling in a great place or I'm a bit older. And I I just want to see the doctor. That yeah. would be my instinct. What could you offer me?
2: Well, first of all, I never think the choice should be binary, I don't think it should be human being or cloud-based consultations, virtual consultations. I think both should exist, but I think clearly the virtual consultation is growing in size and significance. In terms of the issues about who uses telephone consultations, actually when you look around the world, it's not just the preserve of millennials. Often you find that old people also, once they've become acquainted with it, are quite happy to accept it. Let me give you an example – there is a company in Australia called Silver Chain that's constructed a holoporter, which essentially means for old people, a nurse will go into their home to provide care. But when they need to consult with a the doctor, they wear visor screens, and clinical information drops down the visor screen, and the doctor appears as a hologram in front of them. That is I, the
0: weirdest thing. I think well, I've heard I, in healthcare. I agree
2: because um, in a crowded I, field. Listen, I've spent thirty years of my my whole professional life in healthcare, and I didn't believe it. But two years ago at our global conference in Hong Kong we invited them to speak and I said I, I simply don't believe this happens and do you know what they did 3,750 miles away in Perth they hooked us up with a holographic doctor and so we were wandering around the conference floor a bit like um, uh, some sort of spaceman and we communicated with the doctor in in Perth in real time. So it it does happen. And I think it's a nice example of it's not just hip and trendy for the young. It can be a vital tool for the old as well.
0: We asked you to come up with some technology innovators that you thought we should be aware of. So I'm going to ask you to choose some of your favorite children now in, in terms of finding companies, startups who are doing particularly interesting things. Give me a
2: couple. Well, I think the big movement is giving staff more control over their work schedules and giving them more time to care. So there are companies like Allocate or Shift Partner that enable nurses and doctors to decide which shifts in advance they want to work for. And also there are now products which are taking routine tasks away from doctors and nurses so they can spend more time with patients. Now, at the moment, this is still an emerging market, but increasingly in the UK, with a new workforce plan promised in the autumn, I believe that we need to make sure that tech is helping our staff just as much as artificial intelligence can help our patients.
0: Mark Britnell, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: All too human. <laughs> That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our future-gazing journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.